Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. To support the show and get exclusive access to podcast swag, giveaways, private grief hangouts, and more, head on over to patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Support the show for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Thank you so much for listening. Grief Growers, I am also setting sail on the 2019 Bereavement Cruise to join me and a boatload of other grieving hearts as we travel to Haiti, Jamaica, and Mexico. Go to www.comingbackcruise.com where you can sign up to receive more information on the cruise's sail dates, grief presenters, and onboard activities. I'll see you on the open seas. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after loss. On today's show, I'm talking to breakup coach and podcast host, Chelsea Lee Trescott, who broke up with depression, addiction, anorexia, and a string of long-distance boyfriends in order to embrace herself and the world around her. Also on the show today, I'm answering a listener question about sex and the aftermath of grief. Is it normal to have it? Is it normal not to? Let's chat. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much for listening today. Before we start, I want to let you know that July's hour-long live hangout is happening Monday, July 30th at 7 o'clock p.m. Central Time. As a reminder, this hour-long Google Hangout is a bonus for all of you grief growers who are supporting the show at the $33 per month or more level. So for the price of a monthly subscription box service, you get once a month access to me live and off the air to ask questions, get advice on your own grief journey or a friend's, or to just hang out and say hi. To support this show and to join me on Monday, July 30th, head on over to patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia and pledge at the $33 per month level. You get instant access to all of my Patreon-only posts, including the link to join us live. So this week, I'm replying to a comment I received from one of my supporters on Patreon. Joanna writes, Hi, I would like a discussion on sexual intimacy between couples when one is dealing with loss and grief. I know right after and up to about two months after my dad died, I really didn't have much interest or desire for sexual intercourse. I don't know if that's normal or common with other individuals or if it's just me, but I would like to hear what others have to say about it. Thank you so much for writing in, Joanna, and for supporting this podcast on Patreon. I think that what you wrote about, the experience that you have, is normal, absolutely. We forget sometimes that grief affects all areas of our lives, including sex, and having sexual intimacy change or stop as a result of your grieving for your dad is totally understandable. I'll tell you, I did some research this week on grief and intimacy and frustratingly was not able to find 
A whole heck of a lot. Unfortunately, sex is something that's still taboo uh, in our society and talking about how our sex lives change in response to grief is given a low spot on the list in comparison to other elements of our lives changing when our loved one dies, like money or housing or uh, relationships with our kids. It's kind of a shame because sex and having physical connection with others makes up a large part of our day-to-day lives, especially if we are married or partnered while grieving, which I have to say, I think most of us are. So in the articles and books that I did find, I pretty much saw people falling into two camps, people who disconnect from sex while grieving and people who connect to sex while grieving. There are a myriad of reasons why people might fall into each camp. So today I'm going to explore both of them in more depth uh, here for you, Joanna, and for everybody else that's listening today. So first, I'll talk about the reasons that people disconnect from sex while grieving. So experiences similar to yours. First, if people disconnect from sex while grieving, the person that they lost might be the person that they were having sex with. So this specifically relates to death of a spouse, death of a partner, death of a lover, death of a friend with benefits. For people who lose the person that they were sleeping with, often their grief is so large, it's impossible to think about sex and being able to hold that kind of relationship with a person again. Also, couple with that the feeling of a new person, quote unquote, replacing the one that they lost. And for some, that just doesn't feel right or appropriate. I love this from Debbie Augenthaler, who came on the podcast in May of this year in episode 45. She did not date for over two years after her husband Jim died. She writes, about a year or so after Jim died, several people asked when I was going to be ready to date again. It was really easy to slip into feeling that I wasn't living up to a societal rule book of grief. I wasn't ready, but I thought, should I be ready? Is there something wrong that I'm not? Am I ever going to be ready? Stepping out of the shadows felt really good after more than two years of not being ready. I had taken the time I needed to cocoon and heal. From a lot of reading I did, it sounds like some people need and want the time after a partner dies to cocoon and heal, like Debbie Augenthaler says, before stepping back into the world of romance and sex and dating again. And that is perfect, however they do it. Another reason that people disconnect from sex while grieving, if the person they lost isn't someone they were actively having sex with, is that they're grieving. Plain and simple. You really don't need any more explanation than that. Grief brings about a ton of emotions, including sadness, numbness, exhaustion, anger, nostalgia, and pain. And grief is a lot to handle. And for some people, they can't or don't want to transfer that type of emotion to the bedroom. You can't really take grief off like a backpack and set it down and put it back on. It exists with you permanently. So for some people, it's like their hearts are literally unplugged and it's too much effort and or it's too vulnerable to plug their hearts back in to something like sex at such a raw and heartbroken time. And I don't want to get into gendering this too much, but a blog that's called griefhealingblog.com did an article on the difference between male grief and female grief, and in general found that men are what they like to call instrumental mourners, grieving through physical, tangible, visible action instead of emotion, and in general found that women are intuitive mourners, grieving through expression, emotion, and communication. So Joanna, if you're wondering if your unplugging of sex is normal, according to this article, 
For you as a woman, it is. It seems to them that women are more likely to unplug from sex during grief to focus on their emotions and activities like talking and bonding with others. While on the flip side of it, men who are grieving are more likely to do things like start a race or a charity, set up a memorial service, or express themselves through sex and physical touch, something that has a tangible and a visible effect in the real world. A last reason that I want to touch on why people disconnect from sex while grieving is that they might have a spiritual or deeply held belief that say that they should. So many religious teachings instruct people not to have sex explicitly, do not have sex while grieving. And even one website I came across called The Jolly Widow made a connection regarding the energetic exchange of sex. As in, this woman advised people not to have sex with others while grieving at the risk of passing on grief energy and those feelings of deep pain or loss to a sexual partner. I'm not sure how much I personally subscribe to that or how much you will grief growers, but it was fascinating to me in doing research for this episode to learn that people out there subscribe to that belief and use it as reasoning for not having sex after loss. There's a belief in religious groups and even spiritual groups too that advise grievers to be quote-unquote whole again, or married again, or energetically stable before engaging in sex with another person. Now I want to move into why people connect to sex while grieving. I think the first and the biggest reason that people connect to sex while grieving is to be held, to feel alive, and to have company. There's a deep really deep agony of feeling alone and isolated in grief. And having sex can kind of combat that in its own way, not without consequences, but in its own way. One book that I read that I cannot remember the title to now referred to sex after grief as a reminder that life can also be created. It's kind of an act of birth slash creation in the face of death slash destruction. Now, this metaphor only goes so far, especially if you're in the LGBTQ community like I am. But that metaphor that sex is an act of feeling alive in the midst of death is fitting. Uh, another book that I read called Good Grief by Carol Lee had this chapter on desire and the objects of desire, describing grievers as often reverting back to a childlike state when grieving for the first time, especially. There's this need to be taken care of and held and physically nourished in the aftermath of loss. And for some people, having sex fills that identity that grief has produced. Another reason that people lean on sex while grieving is to blow off steam. The Grief Recovery Method Handbook, which you all know is one of my all-time favorite books on grief, lists sex as a stirb or short-term energy-relieving behavior. These behaviors are where we put our energy in the aftermath of loss in order to kind of diffuse some of the tension or heartache or pain that we're feeling. And sex is a big one. It also shares the list with food, drinking, working or becoming a workaholic, escaping to fantasy like TV or the internet, shopping, and drugs. And for many people grieving, sex, whether it's finding new partners or continuing relationships with current ones, is about putting the energy of grief somewhere. There are moments during sex being naked for the first time, foreplay, even orgasm, where the mind totally shifts to being really, really present. And there's a short almost like amnesia or forgetting of everything grief related that's going on in their lives. So grievers often lean on sex for an energy release as an activity that makes them totally present and forgetful of grief, at least temporarily. 
A final reason that people engage in sex while grieving is to create the illusion of being okay or of moving on. There's this perception that being in a relationship or having an active sex life means that you're doing well for yourself. For people who have lost a partner, especially there's this pressure, like Debbie Augenthaler spoke about in her book, to get on with life or to find happiness through dating and having sex again. For people on the flip side who did not lose a partner, there's also a pressure to just get back to life and to business as usual. So some grievers have sex uh, while grieving to show themselves or others that their lives are moving forward and progressing. Now, this action can be unconscious or consciously done, and the sex may be genuine or totally disconnected, but the illusion is there all the same. People have sex while grieving to convince themselves or others that everything is fine, that they've accepted their loss, and that they're moving on. I hope these uh, two camps speak more to your situation, Joanna. And grief growers, however you regard sex in the aftermath of loss, I want you to know is normal and natural. There are people who do not have it. There are people who have it. There are people who have it with people they've known their whole lives or been partnered to for a while. There are people who go out and find total strangers to have sex with. If the sex stops, it stops. If it continues, it continues. If it starts, it starts. And if it changes, it changes. Grief does not spare any segment of our lives from its ripple effects, including sex. There are people who fall into the I don't have sex camp and people who fall into the I do have sex category for a lot of different reasons. If you're looking for a safe place to talk about how your relationship to sex has changed after loss, I would love if you joined us in the Grief Growers Garden, which is my private Facebook group for listeners of this show. I have my own stories about my sex life after loss and will be sharing them there this week. I hope you'll join in on the discussion. I'm also going live this coming Monday, July 16th, to talk about grief and sex. I'll be going live at 1 o'clock p.m. Central Time on my Facebook page. All you have to do is like that Facebook page, Shelby for Scythia, Intuitive Grief Guide, to be notified when the broadcast begins. Also, as one grief grower lovingly noted, I always post a replay of the Facebook Live in the Grief Growers Garden as well, so if you miss it, you can always rewatch it from that private group page. Next up, I'm talking to Chelsea Lee Trescott, who credits her love for life and people to a devastating loss of identity, love, and self-respect. Breakup coach Chelsea Lee Trescott is the founder of Break Upward, a movement encouraging men and women to use heartbreak and setbacks as an opportunity to launch themselves to a greater level of being. As a breakup coach, advice columnist, and host of the podcast, Thank You Heartbreak, Chelsea is recognized as the go-to guide for reframing heartbreak into empowerment for her clients. Whether you're trying to save your relationship or save yourself, Chelsea's coaching is for anyone who needs to break up with the vision and narrative they have of themselves or wants to use the crushing experience of heartbreak as an opportunity to cultivate wisdom, resilience, independence, and a deeper capacity to love and be loved. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to say a special thank you this week for joining us at the very super last minute. Uh, Grief Growers, you know that I do this podcast a little bit in advance, not super crazy, but uh, Chelsea agreed to fill in after a previous interview fell through. And this has just been such a godsend. I have been reading her work on Huffington Post and following her on uh, Thank You Heartbreak on Instagram. And so I'm really excited to get into uh, your loss story first, which I'll ask that you start off with your loss story and then kind of how you got to a space where you are thanking heartbreak for existing. Wow. 
You know, it's so crazy because since I do do deal with breakups, it's almost as if my loss story has to kind of just begin there. But when I'm more really honest about it, or at least honest with myself about it, I think that the loss story of mine started when I left for college for the first time and, you know, had to, I didn't realize how important my reputation was to me. And I was there and completely, I felt like alone and I was, you know, I, it was the first time that I really isolated myself and felt the pressure to kind of live up to people's expectations of who they thought I was because I had like these live journals at the time. People had read a lot about me and I felt like I wasn't going to satisfy who the image was in their mind. And I ended up isolating myself for the first time in my life. They called me like the unicorn in her cave. And I was really, I was in Boston. I had never, I didn't get accepted into the school in New York that later I got accepted to, but I was always busing myself out to New York. And I had a long distance relationship and kind of fast forward, we broke up uh, halfway through my first year. And I felt like it was the first time I had fallen out of conversation with anyone. I had no conversation in my life. And I felt like if I wasn't growing on a, um, if I wasn't growing in insight, I felt deep shame about that. And I started to feel the pressure of summer coming the first year back, wanting to show up as a new person with something to show for herself and experiences and life and friends. And I had none of that. And I decided that for the first time in seven years, I would take care of the issue I had surrounding, you know, my body and loss was one thing. One thing was a loss of a role. And I had been a model when I was young and it wasn't really the modeling. It was just, it was me having something in my life that came naturally to me that I didn't feel like I had to work for that. Like I, in a way that like what it was easy for me, I never had to think about my body like other, other people. And therefore I was really unrelatable. And I ended up gaining 15 pounds in a month and everything changed after that. I became so self-conscious, so self-critical. So my lost story really began with deciding um, I was going to take care of this issue that I had with my weight, thinking about it every other minute. And that's a real thing. And when I didn't have a relationship, and fast forward, I ended up being 83 pounds. It happened so quickly. And I realized that I, I ended up feeling like maybe if I had been in a relationship, then I would have had more self-respect and never would have let that happen. And a best friend of mine ended up, ended up becoming my boyfriend and really protecting me from what I was going through and my father at the time, who was really stunned because he always saw me as a fearless person. And what happened was, is, you know, he protected me. And I ended up thinking that in order to protect myself against loneliness and starting over new cities, because I ended up moving multiple, multiple times, that I always had to have a long distance relationship to protect myself from myself. And um, it wasn't until I went to grad school with a different relationship and I was, uh, I had a nonfiction thesis and I ended up, you know, reading about overcoming my eating disorder and found out the next day when I finally saw a psychiatrist, I was so depressed and he said, I can't help you, you're anorexic. And I said, I'm not, I swear, I, I've been anorexic before, I'm not, I need help, I'm so depressed. 
And he put me on a scale and he showed me that, you know, I was 100 pounds. It wasn't 83 pounds, but it was 100. And it was humiliating. It was humiliating that I had a boyfriend that never said anything, that I was speaking to overcoming my eating disorder. And I didn't look like I was someone that had overcome anything at all. And it was coming full circle from undergrad to graduate school, realizing that I'd really ended up in the same place, was going to have to move home, be around my father when I looked, you know, skeletal again. And so loss for me was, it was loss of an idea I had about myself and my potential, what came naturally to me, and then trying to fill over that and protect myself through having several back-to-back long-distance relationships to protect me when I went to these new cities. And I was fearful, really, of isolation. And what happened was I used these relationships, um, thinking that they would help me in the meantime as I made friends, and I never did, and I isolated myself further. So it's really been about loss of time, loss of self-respect, loss of really the way I saw myself uh, literally and uh, figuratively. And um, because of the situation that I got myself in, where I felt like it was out of my control in a sense, that I didn't starve myself, but now I looked the same, I realized I really needed to, I needed to be a breakup coach because I needed to learn when to break up with people when it was breaking my own heart. And I needed to learn how to uh, break up with the shame that I had surrounding how I had spent those years and uh, really put to bed who I was at 10 years old and who I was as a model. So I think that's kind of the lost story in a way. I love hearing this because in circles of loss and other podcasts regarding loss, there's... uh, how am I going to phrase this? There's losses that you expect. There's conventional losses, quote unquote. There's, you know, death, of course, is the biggest one. Divorce or breaking up is another one. And then diagnosis is like another thing that changes people's lives and really turns them on their head. And one of the things that I speak about on a regular basis on this podcast is what are called secondary losses or invisible losses or layered losses, but the things that we experience that break us that you can't see on the surface and they ripple out and affect your life just like these you know, conventional or expected losses, um, but they're invisible to people that you that, that don't know you're going through them. And a lot of people could put mental illness into this category as well. Um, but the things that you listed off, I wrote down loss of identity. I wrote down loss of connection because despite making yes. all these connections, there's still a core disconnection to who you are as a person, um, loss of time and loss of self-respect. And these are all losses that are just as valid as these other huge losses that are physically visible. So I guess first, how did you establish credibility for yourself as a breakup coach, having all of these losses kind of tumbling around in your history and in your present. I love you for that. Putting me on the spot because I think I should be. (laughs) This is the show for that. (laughs) Because people always, you know, their first question is, so this means that you're really good at breaking up. And the truth was, I, I wasn't in the past good at breaking up. I wasn't good at trusting my intuition and doing it when I, when I needed to, I always thought I needed to buy myself more time um, in order to become stronger in order to do it. And I think that you're never really ready for, for these big uh, transitions and for loss, you know? And um, 
So one way that I think that I have credibility around it is I'm really able to speak to people about the pain. And I think that people come to me, I thought I was going to be a clinical psychologist. That's how I came back to Newark. And I realized that for me, you know, I pulled out of that program and people come to me for a human experience not for a clinical experience. And I'm really able to offer someone and hold space with someone in a human way because I can relate so much and I've been so honest in writing, especially, and in person in dialogue about what I put myself through, not just what, other, really not what other people put me through, but what I put myself through. So that's one way that there's credibility because I've done it to myself. And then the thing that happened was my twin sister, when I graduated from my master's, she went into rehab and this, this broke, this took me to my knees, took me to my knees, but it saved my life. She took a bullet for the whole family and she enabled me to be so honest about how unhappy I'd been because I grew up with a father that was always ecstatic every morning. And from a young age told me that people that were tired were depressed. So I lived in fear of being tired. And her going to rehab enabled me to be honest about really what my days were like, what my days were like, which was usually nothing. And from that experience, I was gifted time and honesty to begin changing the way that I think. And, you know, I brought books into my life. And so I had this experience of going through my sister's recovery and being involved in family recovery and, and, and enabling myself at a time when uh, I was in a bad relationship. I'd lost all this weight again. I was severely depressed. I was addicted to Adderall to begin recovering. And for me, everything's been a slow journey. It has never been overnight. So when I moved back to New York City, I knew that after so many moves, I had an opportunity to do what I knew I needed to do, which was, and again, gain credibility within my own self, that I could do what I knew I had to do, that I could trust that I would take care of myself. And the voice inside of me said, do not get into another long distance relationship. Because if you do that, you'll deprive yourself of connection in real time. You will rely on talking to one person instead of any person. And so I learned, I, I kept my promise. I knew I had one chance. I really felt like it was the last chance I had for myself to really believe I could, I could take care of myself. And I said, I had to learn how to not do what I've always done and to go back out into the world and reintroduce myself. And I was very shaky at that time. I, because I, had been in isolation for so long, I didn't know how to speak to people. And I really mean this. It surprises people, but I had a stutter. I was very, I was very fearful, very panicked. It was scary to feel like you had lost what was so natural, what people knew you as. I thought for so long I was never gonna get that part of me back, and that was grief. So, anyways, I I wasn't in a long-distance relationship. I was single for the first time. And it was about like a year and a half. And I felt like I'd never been so in love. So I put myself not only through like, you know, this breakup that I actually, shockingly, it was so much easier to overcome once I finally let it go. I say that the only thing worse than a, uh, a breakup is the anticipation of a breakup. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. So that was something that really wowed me. And then it was staying single. So I got really good at being single and being able to, for the first time, lead myself into my own life. 
And that's what I think also gives me an enormous amount of credibility as a breakup coach. And then recently, you know, my ex-boyfriend wrote into my advice column. We ended up dating. Wild story. And I knew at a certain point, it was something that I'd never thought about, is that I always thought on a gut level, if you feel like you need to break up with someone and you, you feel that and you need to do it, right? But I never thought about if you had information that told you it would never work out and if you didn't pay attention to that, how you could how it could eat you alive. And in this relationship, I never fell out of love with him. I, I loved him up until that very last moment. Even now I love him. But I had information that told me um, I would be foolish to think that it ever could, uh, we could ever take each other into the future. And so there was credibility for me and for really the first time breaking up when I knew I needed to. And um, I've, I've put myself through it and I, and I see that I've, I've kept my word. Can you speak more on the difference between information and intuition? Oh my God. Yeah. So, well, intuition for me is like, you know, it's just, it's, you know, it's your own wisdom. I think that there's always like something within us that's nudging us in a certain direction. I feel like I used to think, is everyone talking to themselves inside? And I think that maybe we are, but for me, I know for sure that there's always a narration going on. And there's, um, there was always just an inner wisdom and an intuition though, when you deprive yourself of listening to it, it becomes kind of a bodily reaction. And it becomes for me, you know, when I, when I disregarded my intuition, that's how I ended up back at a hundred pounds, you know, you know, it became, you were talking about invisible, you know, invisible losses. Well, invisibly intuition is invisible. If you don't pay attention to it, I created a visible you know, reality for people to see, Ah. I'm actually going, do you know what I'm saying? Like for me, for me, the eating disorder actually needed to be a visible thing because for seven years, everyone thought I was healthy, but I was thinking about my weight every other moment. So for me, it was like, everyone thinks I'm so good. Even if I write and say, I'm not that they, in order to believe me, they have to see it. I have to actually be a problem. I can't just pontificate about it. I have to look like a problem because people can't stand seeing something. They can hear it, but they can't stand seeing it. So I think that when you disregard an intuition, what, become, what starts as insight into yourself on a character level, when you disregard it, it becomes something that other people can see and there's a discomfort because they can see it before you are allowing yourself to see it. Then the other thing is, is information. So information, you're gathering, you know, you're learning about someone through a relationship. You're asking questions. They're telling you, I always go back to Maya Angelou, but when someone tells you who they are, believe them the first time. So that's information, right? Intuitively, you hear someone and you respond to it, but they're giving you information. And information is, it's, it's hard because it's not based in passion and love as people really want to romanticize it. It's not romantic, but for me, there's something really romantic about the idea that I'm going to have an, I'm going to have a partnership that's based on logic. 
that I want to marry someone also based on logic, on the way we want to build a life, the way we want to bring up kids. So I think that's where information comes into play, is that if I have information that this won't be compatible, that we're not, that we want a future to, we want a future together, but we, our futures are going to look the same for each other. That's information and it's not going to work out. And that's hard to resolve because I see a future with someone, but when they look out and see a future with me, we're in totally different cities or we're doing it totally different. And that's where information comes into play. And it's really believing someone, what they tell you, and it's trusting in what you know with yourself and not letting love come along and sidetrack you from who you have been before them. I think it's so important is who was I, who, who was the vision of my life and the purpose? What was the dream that they fell in love with about me? What was I engaged in and not letting love sidetrack me from that? And that's a promise again that you make to yourself. And I'm really big about, you know, I say, if you can be anything in life, be your word. And I try to, I try to have integrity surrounding that. And again, it's hard because you can be in love with someone and have to break up with them because there's someone who you've always wanted to be or always seen for yourself. And I think that at the end of the day, I want to fall in love. I want to have a romance with a person I've always wanted to become because I deprived myself of that and I had no idea what that was going to look like for a decade of my life. If I have information now, I'm going to choose myself and just choose to see what kind of life I can lead because I didn't trust I could do that before. And now I feel I can. I almost cried a minute ago when you were talking about mm, trusting yourself to take care of yourself. Yeah. Because I think, especially when shit hits the fan, whether it's anticipated grief or sudden grief, we really, these voices in our heads, we really put ourselves through the ringer emotionally, mentally, spiritually, but then also physically as well sometimes. We also physically put ourselves through uh, just this, this storm of, you know, I get this image right now of like grasping and trying and scraping and just like even trying on life to see if it works again, but almost with a, a like a frenzy and it's not, it's not careful and it's not necessarily loving either. And I think I'm going to do a spoiler actually for an interview that I'm on. That's not going to be released until later in this month, I think. Um, but this woman, I don't even remember the question that she asked me, but I had this divine response. You know, I think the question was, what was the biggest lesson you learned in your mother's death? And I, I just responded, the words came out of my mouth before I even knew them. And it was like, I really don't need my mother to wow. be able to take care of myself. And I, and I almost hated saying it because, wow, of course I need her. I was 21 years old when she died. Like, of course I still need my mom. Um, but, but to say those words out loud and to be like, yeah, I can, I can take care of myself. And it sucks that she needed to die for me to be able to see that. But I guess where I want to go next is how concretely, maybe with some steps or some tips or advice that you give so well in your column, how do we walk ourselves back to a place where we start trusting ourselves not only to survive every day, but to actually take care 
of ourselves as people and as romantic partners and as just like spiritual humans on the earth? You know, I think one step is that, you know, there's a voice. And I think, again, I, I don't always go for that. It needs to be these grand things. I think it starts out and we should start on the smallest level. So I say like, if there's, I remember with myself, I'd be in New York and I'd be at the cash register getting a coffee and I needed coins in order to do my laundry if I ever wanted to do it. And I would be like, okay, ask for coins. Ask, you have a dollar, can you have quarters back? And I'd be like, I don't want to impose on them. I can't do that. So I would never do my laundry. And it was something as small as that. You learn to take care of yourself when instead of, instead of waiting, instead of not listening to the voice, because you have some kind of, shame or you don't want to impose yourself or what are they going to think? And you're building it up. You're building it up. You're not caring for yourself. It's starting there. So it was a very small thing. I began asking for quarters and then that was a step closer to just me leading myself. Then it began, you know, walk a block longer. Okay. So I actually want to stay outside. I feel like I might have somewhere to go. And I started listening, go by this place. And I saw the conversation that I would have at that place. It was small things, but it was bursts of life on the other side of things. It was bursts of allowance. And I saw that through listening to what I wanted to do on a very small level, I was able to gain huge traction in my life. And I was being able, I was leading my own life. I was leading myself into what I always needed, which was connection and conversation. And just that I wasn't going to wait anymore, as I had always done, to for someone else to be by my side in order to experience the thing that I saw I wanted to experience, in order to sit on the bench a little bit longer, in order to walk into the place that I saw that looked cool, in order to take, listen, to take a picture. You know when you see something on the street and you want to take a picture, but then you're like, oh, everyone's going to see me stopping to take a picture? It's like, take the damn picture for yourself. That's important to you. Stop thinking about what everyone else is thinking about it. And I think we learn to take care of ourselves when we just do we do the little yearnings, what we need at that moment. And we see that it's the small things because the, when we start doing the small things, we end up getting, you know, months down the line and we feel that something has changed subtle. Right. And we look back and we say, mm-hmm. everything's different. And why this is important to me is because I trust in a difference that's like that. I trust in a difference that has been slow and steady because it means that like it's become me. These small moves have become now the way that I am intuitively moving through life. And I trust in the ability that it's become me. It's not just a burst of this new me. It's something that I've, I've come into. And so I think that, you know, ways that I help people, I would encourage them to take care of themselves is you know, and I heard this in recovery with my sister and I was so like, what are they talking about one day at a time? I have no, <laughs> one day at a time. I'm like, oh gosh, it's so frustrating. I, and I used to have no patience, right? I had no patience for myself. I needed everything right now. I mean, we're in a culture of immediacy, number one. And there's shame if things take one day at a time, right? But I started, you know, somehow it became me. And I gave, I had some grace with myself. I was forgiving of myself. I was trusting that if 
I finally listened to myself, that was more than I had done before, which meant that it was going to take me in a different direction. And it was worth seeing if that direction would be different. It was just worth discovering. When I stopped I was dependent on Adderall for eight years. It was harder than overcoming my eating disorder, right? And I just said, at a certain point, it was the scariest thing I'd ever given up because it was tied into really just this image that I had of myself and uh, my career and all of it and my worth, my value, what I could give to the world through Adderall and productivity. And back to like my dad saying that if you're tired, you're depressed in life. And I use this drug to never be tired. It was the, it was my companion when I was alone. And I said to myself, if I'm, I have to just try, nothing else is working. I'm tired all the time. Nothing's happening. Eight years of my life. I look completely sh- strung out. And I said, I'm just going to try. I'm going to try to see if in, t- in my mind, it was always get off the drug and everything will change. Get off the drug and your writing will be published, okay? And I, I never said, I'm not ready to be off the drug because all, the, for all the reasons, right? And one day, I decided I would try. Five days later, my work was published by the, the place that I always wanted to be published. And that green light, I don't know, if, if I hadn't gotten a green light that day, maybe I'd still be on it by now. now. But because I got a green light, I never looked back. And I saw that I had been right all along and I waited eight years of my life to just listen to myself and I really believe that every time inside where it says just begin just do this just reach out reach into a new way it's always been exactly what I've needed and I've known it I think I've always known it but I I was afraid of the responsibility that came with it the responsibility that came with being a more a person you know, just that, you know, power, you know why? And I, as I say this, I think it's because I always idolized the person that had everything naturally, right? The person that was unrelatable, but also was fearless. And I think that I was so attached to the story of me being so crippled and not having that anymore. And, you know, and that there was depth there. And so I think that I always, I, I got stuck in that being who I was and yet for me, you know, it's about, um, I, I broke upward, you know, I, it was about, it's okay to be that person again. It's okay to like, let go of the story of how you've crippled yourself for so many years. And it, it'll be, I don't know, it'll be exciting to see what is possible for me if I get out of my own way. And I'm not going to be the 10-year-old self because I look at how much I've learned, but I will never, I realize I will never, and it's horrible to say this, I will never forgive myself if I haven't tried. I realize that in life, I will never forgive myself if I don't start. And so I, I can't stand the idea of that. And uh, so that's a big reason that I just start now and I'm not waiting on myself anymore. So I would tell people, don't wait on yourself. And listen to what you're hearing. And let, let yourself be the guide for once. Let, let you guide you. And trust that it's leading you in a direction that might not feel right, but is, is necessary right now. I like that a lot because so much of grief, the aftermath of grief, the aftermath of breakups even, is <clears throat> right. autopilot. 
what am I supposed to be doing? What's expected of me? What are they looking for? Uh, what does everybody else do when this happens? Um, I kind of want to shift gears into your work with breaking up specifically and and take a big focus here. I know here on Coming Back, a lot of the stories that we do tell are about death. And so I want to know what brings, causes, instigates so many grief emotions in breaking up. Losing a future. People... People feel much more comfortable when they have someone by the, their side and they're looking outward and, and they say, this person, I don't have to rely only on myself to move myself forward in life with this person next to me. They'll nudge me along. They'll keep me going. They'll keep me desiring something. And we grieve our future. That's what I see more than anything. We grieve the future that we thought we were going to have. And, you know, a lot of people, they they stay with people and they're with people for their potential, right? So, again, it's, it's grieving their potential and the potential that you thought that you were ultimately going to get, the satisfaction around the relationship that you're ultimately going to get. And so the, the emotions that I see is – is not so much over the person. It's over the idea of what you thought the person was going to provide you. And it was the images you saw yourself closing in on. And so you grieve that, uh, that they won't be there. And you, people, you know, as much as we're trying to become a culture of being in the present, people still live their lives looking forward. They really live their lives looking forward. And it's startling. When you lose the person that you were moving forward with, and that was in many ways for people keeping them going, keeping them aspirational, keeping them showing up every day. I mean, you know, some people only take care of themselves because they're in a relationship and they feel like in a way they're under a microscope or they have someone to impress and people forget, like impress your damn self, you know, or, you know, when you lose someone, it's your turn now. It's your turn to see where you can take yourself. So I think that people get startled and panicked by, by that. And that's what they're grieving is, is the future, the vision, and that now it comes down to them. And there's responsibility in that. There's responsibility. There's no longer, you know, you know it's not like this shared power moving them through the world. It's, it's their own. And people don't trust in their own power. Or they think that there's someone has to be in their life in order to spark them, in order to show love. I think that one of the best things in the world is to realize that, you know, not to wait for someone to come into your life in order to give love or to give your to, to pour out your thoughtfulness, but to be giving it all along and to not have to wait for someone or have to be reciprocated. And I think once you start to do that, there's not as much grief because it's not a, your, your love, your liveliness is not attached. Your aliveness is not attached to just you being in relation to one person it becomes you in relation to the world. It's you ultimately are moving yourself through the world just because someone else is there. You ultimately are sitting with yourself inside yourself every day. And so I think that, you know, there's less, less grief when we realize that ultimately um, if we can, can, start working on how we move through the world and have that be the best thing possible. If we make that kind of the project of our lives, then we will really begin to feel in love with our reality. I like that response. And that was, that's kind of what I was thinking too, but there is this image or a perception, especially when you say you're a breakup coach of like, 
good riddance and burn your bra and kick him to the curb and all, you know, all those other uh, types of phrases that, that resist love. I'm the furthest. Yeah. Yes. But, but, but what you're, you're teaching is not a resistance to love. It's a shifting of that perspective. And I, I really like that. It's a different, it's a different angle with which to view relationships and dating and the people that we choose to spend time with. Um, I'm wondering if you can pinpoint for us now one resource that really, really helped you come back, or maybe something that you return to over and over and over again and say, this is what helps me come back. So one thing that I use over and over and over again is being in conversation with other people. You know, I used to think that, and I think a lot of us feel like we're only alive. I mean, people cry so hard in front of me when they come to me clients that they've lost their, their, um, they've lost access to life. If, if they let go of someone, they will no longer have a life. And for me, it's about, and I used to feel the same way. I thought I could only be in, uh, alive when I was, a, when I had a relationship. And for me, what, what brings me back is being in conversation with other people. And when I say that, I mean that people that it's not about like people that I'm, I'm going to be always are going to be in my life. It's not about calling my best friend or pouring out energy and commitment to that. It's about talking to Uber drivers. It's about talking to people on the street. It's about, I was just ordering food and the guy wanted to close the restaurant down and he was so angry that he was going to have to make my friend and I food. I mean, he was, he was done with it. And I, I, what did I say? I, I, I said something and it was just playful and I was being playful and like the guy transformed his energy. He ended up giving us the meal for free because he regretted how we had just seen him. The guy was a different person. And I'm talking about that's the stuff that brings me back. I mean, I'm going through a breakup right now. The things that have gotten me back that make me not regret or reconsider or put my old relationship up on a pedestal is being in conversation with other people, is seeing people light up, is seeing other people light up when I stand and talk to them and also me become lighter. You know, I spent my life with this unbearable weight. So for me, the thing that I come back to is what makes me feel light. I th- used to think that it was only relationships, but no, it's, it's, it's me being in conversation a burst of conversation even with other people. And that's the thing, you know, again, it's, it's not just a resource, I can name a book, but I think that this is something that this is the thing that I've always needed in my life. And it's something that we always have. I say, listen, everyone that you're near, all their choices throughout their life, all the choices they've ever made has brought them to a place that they're standing right in front of you. Maybe have a little curiosity about that and talk to them. Because your choices brought you next to them too, even just in a moment, on a, on a freaking bus, right? And just be a little bit curious about why you're standing here and you're near other, other people. That's so neat because it's such a um, – the word that's coming forward for me right now is enchantment. Just being delighted and enchanted that, oh my gosh, we're all on this thing together. And look how we all got here. And there's nothing trite about that at all. It's almost a miracle that, Mm. you know, things like buses, like trains, like all going to work at the same time, that we orchestrate these 
so well for ourselves. I mean, even this interview, it's like, I'll meet you at 8 p.m. my time, 9 p.m. your time, and we just show up. And it's like, something got us all here. I mean, some of us have to earn a paycheck, and some of us are visiting our parents, and some of us, you know, have a doctor's appointment, but we're all in this space together. So there's a level of enchantment that I sense that you have found in being alive with others on the planet. And that's really cool that that's coming through because um, it's an opposite, it's an opposite but complementary tack to take in grief because in grief, often there's a disenchantment and everything's falling apart. But in the opposite hand, I always use this metaphor of you hold two realities, one in each hand, and you can never fully drop either one of them while you're grieving is the searing joy and enchantment and total depths of despair. Um, but to see that enchantment start to outweigh that, that despairingness, the disconnection, the loss of identity, loss of time, loss of self-respect, and to have this be the counterweight to that is very cool. I mean, I, I know that I will never go back. I really trust in that I will never go back to the despair of being disconnected from people because I am, you're, you're right. I am enchanted. I think it's a miracle that I've even, um, that, that it's working, that the conversations all along were all I needed and I'm enamored by people and I could never, never, I mean it never allow myself to become skeptical, um, or distant or guarded because of one loss. I could never allow for it. I will never allow myself not to be curious about people. And and again, I'm just, I'm really enamored by people. And I don't want to just talk to one type of person. I want to talk to every type of person. And I realize that with breakups, it's not just about romantic. People open up about the, st- the times that they've lost they've lost interest in themselves. And finally, after living a decade away from other people, which is not what I wanted. I have found a way to speak to anyone and have someone, when someone says, what do you do? It no longer becomes about me. It gives them permission to open up about who they are. It's unbelievable. And I'm just, I'm, I'm in awe of it. I'm in awe because it's given me access to others. And that is the gift of our deepest grief is that, Oh, all of a sudden we have a deeper access to life as well. That's what's coming through. That's what's coming forward. Um, before we sign off for the day, I would love if you could tell us where people can find you, not only where they can ask for advice, but where they can work with you one-on-one and how they can listen to your podcast also. Yay. Okay. So for, for my services, which I do e-coaching, which is a little bit like the advice column, I do one-on-one in New York city and I do phone coaching. Um, they can go to breakupper.com. They could also go to breakupper.com slash shop and you can check out immediately from my site. It's super simple. There's a cart. And then for my podcast, it's on iTunes. It's on SoundCloud, all of the places that you can listen to podcasts and it's thank you heartbreak. And you can connect with me on Instagram at thank you heartbreak. And you can email me. Uh, my advice column is starting up again with, uh, I was with the Huffington Post, and now I'm I'm doing a trial run with Greatest. So email me at chelsea at breakupward.com. And I'm super stoked because this advice column is going to be about 
what it means to really break upward and advice surrounding that. So that's where you can find me. This conversation has been so cool because I, we've gone in a lot of directions. We've talked about invisible losses today. We've also talked about, you know, what it's like to, to have to do things slow, but to want to become as opposed to just happen. Humans don't really just happen. We are always in process of becoming. Um, yeah. And then our, our deepest pain is a source of allowing for more life as well. So this is this has just been so cool. We've been meandering all over the place. So Chelsea, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. You are you I'm like fascinated by how how good you are at leading a conversation. So thank you for inviting me into it. I feel very uh, I feel very fortunate and privileged to to have you have me on. Thank you. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so very much to Chelsea Lee Trescott, who came on Coming Back to talk about how breakups and being able to take care of ourselves can position us to fall in love with our lives. Chelsea continues to come back by being enchanted by others and having connection conversations with others as much as she can. You can find a link to Chelsea's website where you can find her coaching work, her podcast called Thank You Heartbreak, and her advice columns in the show notes. Join me for Facebook Live this Monday, July 16th at 1 o'clock Central Time, where we'll chat about the relationship between grief and sex. What has your experience been? Come sail with me and now seven fellow grief growers on the 2019 Bereavement Cruise by requesting more information at comingbackcruise.com. Thank you so much as well to podcast listener Aline, who pledged to support Coming Back on Patreon this week. If this show has changed the way you see grief and loss, go to patreon.com slash Shelby Forsythia, where you can pledge for as little as $1 per month and get some very cool podcast rewards for doing so. If you liked what you heard today, you can also support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and by telling a friend about Coming Back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you always to Mr. Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or a comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com, subject line, podcast. As always, grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you, I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world, and I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing. We are growing.